Hello and welcome to the Sharpening Report. I am your host, Josh Peck. Tonight we have a very special returning guest, Dr. Michael Heiser, to talk with us about the parables of Enoch from his latest commentary, A Companion to the Book of Enoch, A Reader's Commentary, Volume 2, The Parables of Enoch, which covers First Enoch 37 through 71. So a very short, succinct uh, title, easy to remember. <laughs> Mike, it's I great. I tried to make it longer, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably what the whole book is half of it is the title uh it's great to have you back on the show how are you doing yeah good thanks you know it's like it's like those 17th century books where the title's like 40 words long you know <laughs> like, like they confuse title with preface right, right. That, that's how the preface was invented <laughs> So for those who may not have read uh, your first commentary, uh, th this uh, this is the second volume. I actually have them here. People want to take a look. Excellent books. Uh, this is the second one, the one we'll be talking about today. That's the first one. Um, for those who may not have read the first commentary, uh, this the one that we're going to be talking about is the second volume in a series. Can you give us a little background on the Book of Enoch? What time period did this come from? Uh, who mm -hmm. read it? And how was it understood in its own time? Yeah, you know, the as far as the textual material we have, that goes back, let's just use round numbers, 300 BC. Um, and, the, and the earliest stuff would be from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the Aramaic fragments. So that's where the date comes from. You know, the book's probably a little older than that. Um, you know, somewhere in, in Second Temple period, which is the intertestamental period. So again, round numbers, 500 BC to 70 AD is the period. And the, the content, you know, fits with a lot of other things in that period. But, you know, it, it has some unique features that are shared by other books that because Enoch is the most noteworthy one, uh, scholars tend to refer to these other ones as Enochian. You know, how original is that, you know? So that, that's the time period. As far as the content, Enoch is an apocalypse, which is a, a nice academic way of saying the book is essentially saying you're all doomed. <laughs> whoever's, reading, whoever's reading this is doomed. Uh, you know, it's the revelation, you know, like the book of revelation, it's the end of the world, you know, all this apocalyptic, you know, imagery and themes and whatnot. And so that that's Enoch, but the, the book itself is actually, it's kind of like the Bible in that, how the Bible is an assemblage of separate books. And Enoch is like that too. You know, there's at least five, some would say, you know, seven or eight separate, you know, books or authorial hands in here. I mean, nobody really knows for sure, but, but there are enough differences between sections that that's a working theory. And the first 36 chapters, which was the first commentary, is known as the Book of the Watchers because it really fixates on, okay, this is an apocalypse, you know, that, that Enoch is telling you about. You're all doomed, but here's why. <laughs> so it, it's basically the whole world is just you know utterly depraved, and it traces the depravity of humankind not to Genesis three. It takes it back to Genesis six. Okay, with what the Watchers taught humankind, and it, again the way I like to put it is to more efficiently destroy themselves and those around them. So idolatry, you know, astrology, arts of seduction, immorality, warfare, you know, wanton, you know, death and destruction. So all of that in, in the mind of, of, you know, not just you know, whoever wrote Enoch, but lots of Second Temple authors can be traced back to the, the pre-flood events with, with the Watchers, the sons of God in biblical, you know, parlance.
So can you give us an overview of the parables of Enoch, which is found in chapters 37 through 71? This is the focus of your latest commentary overall. What, what are these parables about? What, what's their purpose? Yeah, so this is the, the second section you know, of the overall book of Enoch. And it is different than the first because you do have these parables. Like there's no parables in the first section. And the, the parables sort of explain again, you know, what's coming and why. And so the, it'll dip into, you know, the, the watcher story here and there. But the major focus is actually not the cause or, you know, anything like that. It, it's really on the final judgment. And it, it's this is the section of the book that focuses on the Messiah. Because in Enoch, and especially in these chapters, the Messiah is he doesn't come as a, you know, like we think of in the New Testament, as a, a you know a conquering king and a savior figure, you know, atoning death. There's nothing like that. This is all pre-Jesus. Rather, the Messiah is presented as the judge. Okay, he's going to be the judge of of the wicked. He's going to vindicate the righteous, and then we're going to have the kingdom, you know, of, of God. That sort of thing. So, if you, for people more familiar with the Bible, if you think Day of the Lord, again, the, the, this kind of thing where. You know, the Lord returns, again, the wicked are punished, the righteous are validated, and, and that's that's the end of all things, and so on and so forth. So there's lots of, it's kind of like Ragnarok, you know, lots of death and destruction and judgment. But on the other side of that, again, you have the righteous being with the Lord. Well, that's what, that's what this section of Enoch is about. And the parables get into who, you know, who the Messiah is, and basically a profile, and also, who are the wicked, and why are they being judged? And then, therefore, who are the righteous, and why are they again going to be with you know with the Lord at the end? So the parables sort of explain the division. It explains the judgment. It explains again what what's going to happen. And uh, but but the major focus, the reason why these get a lot of attention, is you have in this section of the book, you have a pre-Christian Jewish profile of Messiah that includes things that lots of critics of Christianity like to say were invented by the early church. And that is not the case. Uh, th this, is, this is datable. There's a reference to the Parthians, for instance, in the book, which allows, you know, the majority of scholars you know, are agreed that this section of Enoch is probably about 40 BC, trickling on into the first century. But that's still a good half century before the earliest gospel you know, was written. So this is pre-Christian stuff, and you have things like a pre-existent Messiah. It, it, you know, Enoch uses all of the, the familiar terminology, the chosen one, the righteous one, the son of man, the anointed one, Mashiach. And so it tells you, uh, again, at least there was one strain of Judaism that sounds awfully close <laughs> to, to the kinds of things that we get in the New Testament. The only thing missing is the, an atoning death you know, and resurrection. Uh, so if, it's like, think second coming, think day of the Lord, and that's your your Messiah, you know, when it comes to, you know, the book of the parables. Yeah, it's always interesting to read uh, stuff from the Dead Sea Scrolls, because there's like this connective tissue between the Old and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to see um, how, uh, you know, po possibly some of this stuff might have had some influence. Usually when we as Christians think of parables, you know, we mm -hmm. think of the many parables of Jesus. Now, how do the parables of Enoch compare to what we're used to in the Bible? Are these similar or are these just totally different? Well, in terms of in terms of what literarily what a parable is, they're similar. This is they're going to be, you know, 
they're going to be stories, okay? There's going to be a, a story flavor to them that is going to convey, you know, certain truths, which again is is very typical for what we think of as parable. So, since since we have storytelling mode, okay, in this section three times, three extended parables. That's why it gets its name. So it's a it's a fair equivalence to draw. Hmm. Would would Jesus have been familiar with the book of Enoch? Because immediately in chapter 38, uh, a line jumped out at me. It might be a general line that was, you know, used. I mean, we use it today. Uh, but it's it's talking about the sinners who are judged. It says it had been good for them if they had not been born. Yet that mm-hmm. sounds really similar to something Jesus said about Judas. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the idea that Jesus may have been familiar with Enoch? Is that a reach, or are there some similar phraseology from the Book of Enoch found uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, or e- even in other areas of the New Testament that might tell us possibly even Jesus himself may have been familiar with this text? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if if we begin with with the the assumption, and I think it's a sound one, that you know what what Matthew and other gospel writers, for instance, are writing uh, when when they when they have dialogue between Jesus and either his disciples or his enemies, that that that's a genuine representation of stuff Jesus said. I mean, nobody's going around with a tape recorder, obviously, and the right. synoptic gospels are different, but it's a faithful presentation. With that assumption. I think it's almost it's it's certain that he knew the content. And to to me, here's here's the line that stands out is Matthew twenty five forty one, uh, where you know he's again he's talking about judgment, just like you know Enoch is, and then then they will say, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, that that combination. Uh, that that characterization and combination of of the devil and angels with you know this this lake of fire thing, this is the only place where the combination occurs. You get two of the three you know later on in the book of Revelation, but you get all of those things in the book of Enoch. In other words, Enoch is sort of the pool from which that specific language comes. And so uh, you know again, if if this is Jesus actually talking, yeah, I mean this, you know. It reflects very, very clearly, you know, what's going on here. It's not the only example. Um, on, on my podcast, Naked Bible Podcast, we actually did an episode. It's got to be two, two, three years ago now, on uh, heavenly books. Okay, and the one we're familiar with is the Book of Life and and all this. And then we we did another one on uh, you know this this kind of language. And these are some of the clearest examples of where New Testament writers and characters, including Jesus, uh, are actually referencing things in the book. Okay, maybe they don't like quote chapter verse. I mean, Jude does, you know, you know, everybody knows that the New Testament, you know, at least in, in Jude will dip into it explicitly. But what they don't seem to realize is that the content of the book is referenced a lot. It's alluded to a lot. And again, for my money, this is one of the most transparent uh, examples of this because you don't have this come from the Old Testament. You know, you, you don't have this, you know, spelled out. Now, now, you have all the data points, okay? There's the Satan figure in his realm. You know, he's the realm of the dead, the underworld, you know, and, and you've got, you know, demons and, and, you know, rebellious, you know, supernatural beings that are in this place. I mean, all the data points are there, but you never get it spelled out anywhere, you know, where they're all, all these things are collected and put in one place. But in Enoch, you do. And in Matthew 25, you do. 
So back in back in that time, in the time of Jesus, how did they view the Book of Enoch? Did they view this as scripture? Was it a part of their canon, or uh, or was it just a history mm-hmm. book to them? How would they have uh, viewed this, and how does that inform how we should view it today? Yeah, the, it's fair to say that that the overwhelming majority of the Jewish community did not consider the Book of Enoch canonical. The exception to that are the people who lived at Qumran, and the best bet for them. Is still the the Essenes, you know, even though they're they're niggly problems, you know, with it. Uh, but that's still the best bet. They they cite there's a couple lines of evidence for for how they felt about the book. They cite it with formulaic language, you know, thus it is written or as it is written or you know here's the, the interpretation. They use the, they use certain phrases when they are quoting you know books that that we you know in, in today's world would you know, recognize as canonical, whether we're Protestant or Catholic. And they do that for those books and for Enoch. They also do it for the Temple Scroll, which is a kind of a sectarian uh, document. The other thing they do is they produce commentaries, just like we have today, you know, commentaries on biblical books. And the, the people at Qumran, the scribes there, only wrote commentaries on biblical books and Enoch. You know, and the Temple Scroll. So, it it tells you that those two things were were elevated in their eyes. So you at least have one stream, one you know stripe or variety of what we call Second Temple Judaism. Consider this, you know, uh, a, a canonical work. And, and before we move on from that point, I think we the audience needs to realize that Second Temple period or intertestamental Judaism is a lot like saying the word Christianity today. There is no one of those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's, there's not as much variety as if you use the word Christian today because you've got your three main branches, you know, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox. And then, you know, underneath all of those, we get to splinter them, you know. Uh, so you've got dozens and dozens of, of things that are Christian. Um, wasn't quite that situation, but you got a good four or five you know, going on in the intertestamental period. So there is no one Judaism. So we have to, we have to realize that, but there was at least one of those, one strand that considered Enoch, you know, as, as part of their, their sacred texts. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I'm curious too about the original writer's uh, view of ancient history and eschatology, what, what that was and how it compares or contrasts with our own. So for example, in chapter, chapter 39, it says, uh, in those days, the elect and holy children mm-hmm. will descend from the high heaven and their seed will become one with the children of men. Now, is that an event that would have been future from Enoch's time, meaning that it points towards uh, Genesis 6? Or is this something from the future, you know, to, well, what would be the future of the writer in the second century or first or whenever it was written? Uh, and in either yeah. case, how do we yeah. make sense of who the elect and holy children are? Yeah, well, since they are elect and holy, this would be something, you know, future. It wouldn't be Genesis 6 because that's about as far as you could get from elect and holy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, and, and really what it what it refers to is it refers to, and I'm, I'm going to use biblical lingo now, it, it, it refers to the restoration of, of Eden, you know, because Eden, again, I wrote a lot about this in Unseen Realm, that the whole, the whole Edenic plan was, you know, God's you know, supernatural family, as it were, the heavenly host, uh, coming to earth with him, you know, in this place, you know, called Eden, that God creates humans. And the the whole idea is that God is going to come to man, dwell with him, and they're going to be there too. So we have this blended family kind of thing, you know, supernatural and human, all 
all in the same place, all, you know, all together. And, you know, the idea would have been that if, if there had been no fall or no rebellion, this is, this is the way life was supposed to be. Humans were supposed to be fit for, for sacred space out of the gate. And, you know, I think we can conclude because of where the story ends that, that eventually we would have been either, you know, glorified to, to be more like them or something like that. But this was the intention to have this blended family thing. So the line in Enoch really is a lot like what you get in the New Testament uh, in, in New Eden, New Creation, you know, the global Eden thing, the way the book of Revelation ends, where you have the you know, the, again, you have this re, re-merging. You have humans joining the celestial family and so on and so forth. Uh, in Unseen Realm, the way I put this is that, is that uh, human believers re- replace what was lost in all these rebellions. Again, we, we become the reconstituted council. You've got Hebrews 2, you've got Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Everybody stops at the first verse for Hebrews 12, you know, <laughs> the cloud of witnesses. Well, if we keep reading, it's this gathering of festal, you know, angels. You know, there's, there's a lot more to it you know, than that. But Eden is brought back full circle, and this was the original plan. And so that's why, you know, our sanctification ends with this being part of the picture, that we we become, you know, re-grafted into this. And and this is the Enochian way, you know, of expressing the same idea at the time of the end. So again, just that little bit, there's there's a point of consistency that's very clear, you know, between this book and, and, uh, you know, material in the new testament so again it just goes to defy this notion because people tend to dismiss enoch and and other you know second temple literature well well you know where is it quoted i want to see a quote well okay you know i I, if i was a mean nasty person i would i would want to see where where the new testament quotes explicitly the old testament you know about half the the quotations we think we we have are, are are not explicit but they're illusions and they're clear so it's the same kind of thing going on. You don't have to give the chapter and verse reference for people who know the material to know what you're thinking when you're using that line or that phrase or that, you know, that, that imagery. They, they, they know where they're tracking because they're familiar, you know, with, with the, whole, the whole scope of it. So, it, you know, it, I think it's important, you know, generally. But we could, you know, you, if we want to get into some apologetic value, I think – I think especially this section is really useful in a very specific apologetics way when it comes to Messiah, but I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you drive, you know, I'll stay in that lane. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, and I definitely do have a question about that. Uh, just to put a cap on this one. So when it says, uh, you know, their seed will become one with the children of men, that's not what we're thinking of like some kind of mating, you know, between, you know, humanity mm-hmm. and, and, you know, us and our resurrected bodies because, right. you know, Jesus said there's there, no marriage. The, Right. The, the, yeah. the term seed doesn't refer to copulation. It refers to the result of copulation. In other words, these guys are going are to, you know, this family is going to be mixed with that family. They're both seed. They're both the right. result of, you know, creation. Definitely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in chapter 40, uh, you, you had mentioned uh, uh, angels. And in chapter 40, we actually get a glimpse of the importance of angels in, the, in the, really all throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, but we find it a lot in Enoch. It talks about these four presences. And as we discover, the names for these angels are Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, and Fenuel, if I'm saying that right. Uh, mm-hmm. would, the, would these be the same as the, the four uh, cherubim from Ezekiel? Would, would, he be, would the writer be drawing from that or the living creatures in Revelation? And why were angels so important to those in the first century uh, who followed the Dead Sea Scroll writings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really see um, 
any correlation with the cherubim of Ezekiel. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, an, an archangel would be of, of much higher rank right. you know, than a throne guardian, you know, that sort of thing. So I, plus if you actually read the passage, there's very little to suggest that, you know, it would, I mean, that's, it's a nice way of saying there's nothing to suggest. That. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you'd at least want some, you know, sort of connection other than, Oh, there's four of those, you know, um, <laughs> Except where there's not, you know, I mean, there are other places in Enoch where, where the, the number is different, you know, you actually get seven. And, and, and this goes back to the sections and authorship and authorial hands and because the number is not always consistent, you know, sometimes it's seven, but, uh, you know, the, the, the big four here are clearly listed, but I don't see a, a connection back. I think this is, they, they're, they have ruling authority and the cherubim would not. Exactly, and that that kind of ties in with your uh, uh, previous book, Angels, and and how this uh, denotes more more their their jobs or their their you know w- yeah. w- what they're supposed to do rather than like the, their species or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you it's, meant oh, you sorry, know, it's really interesting though because some of them in in Enoch get very specific you know jobs. It's not just it's not just hierarchical language because some of the the archangels are selected out to do specific things. So again, it, on the podcast we're doing a series on. Um, the, the use of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, okay? Mm-hmm. So I, we're at Revelation, I think, yeah, I think we just recorded or are going to record chapter 9. Oh, nice. And, and it's interesting, you know, there's this whole debate over, okay, you get to Revelation 9-1, you get the, the angel with the key, you know, to the, to the he has the key, the key to the bottomless pit and so on and so forth. So is that the same one as over in Revelation 20 verse 1? And, but but it, the, the real question is, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Right. Well, the, the, the most obvious candidate, though, is Oriel from the book of Enoch, because he is actually described as being the angel over Tartarus, okay, which is the pit. You know, that, again, that's, that's, that's Peter's terminology, you know, for the angels that send, you know, the, the, the watchers in Enoch and Enochian language. So he's the most obvious candidate. So, we're, we, you know, we'll get into that when we record that session. But it's a good example of how um, – you you go from this general term, general job description to well, you know, this is also a new <laughs> job description. So you know, you be, hope you're good at this. You know, <laughs> it'd be weird yeah, if he wasn't good at it. It's like, well, Lord, you 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 know me better than anybody. Why would you have right. me do this when you created me to not be good at this? <laughs> you you had mentioned a good apologetic tool in in the in the second right. parable, which is uh, chapters forty five through fifty seven. We see focus shift to this Messiah figure that you mentioned, who's the one that judges sinners and. The interesting thing is, like you alluded to, is that we're, we're always taught in church that no Jew ever at any time ever really understood who the Messiah would be or what he would be doing or anything about him, and it was a total mystery until Jesus came. But the book of Enoch seems yeah. to tell a, a much different story, as do much of the Dead Sea Scrolls. What was the expectation of the Messiah within different Jewish factions just before the time of Christ, and, and why did the Dead Sea Scrolls seem to paint a picture of the Messiah that seems really similar to Jesus. Yeah. Again, because there were, there were multiple sects of Judaism there, not everybody's expectations, you know, were identical. So, you know, that, that, that's the first thing out of the gate because they're, they're all looking at the same source. You know, they're looking at the Hebrew Bible and they're they're looking at a, a mass of data points. And so the question is, okay, We've got all this scattered information about this deliverer guy, the servant, you know, Mashiach, you know, all these different terms. So how do we, 
how do we put this together and create a profile? And and we know, you know, having read the New Testament, that, that the New Testament writers will will use Old Testament passages in ways that are quite unexpected to us. And what people don't realize is that some of those ways would have been quite un, unexpected to certain, you know, sects of Judaism at the time. But there were other sects of Judaism that really tracked on it. Now that that it's a little bit of a convoluted way of, of, of saying this. You know, you're right that you know, and it's typically Christmas or Easter. You know, we, we get we get treated to the History Channel special, or you know, the MSLSD or something. You know, the the the, the Christ of, of faith versus the Jesus of history. You know, these these specials basically that are are so woefully underinformed. But the, they're they're designed to create this this hermeneutic of suspicion that the Jesus of the Gospels, you know, really. That isn't what what was described in the Old Testament. So that so this stuff that Christians believe must be made up later. That's where it's going with this. You know, the magazines on the impulse shelf, the whole bit. There's this Jesus of history, and then there's the there, and there's the Christ that the church made up. You know, but but Enoch and other books, but especially Enoch and especially this section, really defies that. You can't coherently say things like the interpretive spin that the New Testament writers have on this or that passage is totally unique and made up because it's not. You can find all of their trajectories somewhere in Second Temple Judaism. Okay, we might have one strand that tracked on one or two, and then another strand doesn't track on those two, but they track on another one here. So the New Testament writers are actually, they're going to align with different Jewish outlooks, you know, the four or five different outlooks. And, and the, the one where you get the most hits, as it were, is the Enochian you know, trajectory, the Enochian strand here, and, and some of the most important stuff like pre-existence. You know, this, this is an idea that clearly, you know, if you think the Messiah was around before there was a world, well, then the chances <laughs> are pretty high that you know, you're looking at a divine being. Here. <laughs> I mean, how, how else can you parse that? And, and, and that's one of those things that, oh, this is something that the church invented later. You know, well, first Enoch 48. If I, I was on an interview yesterday and I said, look, every, you know, all the, the Watcher Genesis 6 stuff, that gets all the press, okay? But if there's one passage in Enoch that is of value for Christians, it's this one. And it's first Enoch 48. So it, it's, again, it's the son of man, which ought to be real familiar, Okay. So in that place, Enoch says, I saw the fountain of righteousness, which was inexhaustible, and around it were many fountains of wisdom. So he's having this vision of, of you know, the, the dwelling of God. And all the thirsty drank of them and were filled with wisdom, and their dwellings were with the righteous and holy and elect. And at that hour, that son of man was named in the presence of the Lord of Spirits, God, and his name before the head of days. Again, that's very similar to ancient of days. Verse 3, yea, before the sun and the signs were created, before the stars of heaven were made, his name was named before the Lord of Spirits. So essentially the Son of Man gets his, you know, is tasked, okay, before, you know, at the, at, at, before humans were created, I mean, really at the dawn of creation. So there you go. I mean, Son of Man is, is the title used most of the time in Enoch for the Messiah figure. Um, and it, it, it's also, you know, Jesus' favorite title for himself. So think of it this way. If I'm somebody living out in the desert, you know, with the, this Qumran group, you know, and it's like, 
you know, we're out here, we're, we're expecting, they, and they were expecting the Messiah. You talked about eschatology before. Everybody had their own eschatological system. And the one that, at Qumran, the Essenes, were the, is the only one that sort of fits the window into which Jesus was born, which is really interesting because they believed in a hundred cycles of Jubilees, 4,900 4, years, and they did their math, you know, based on that with a 364-day calendar. And, it, and it, it has this window, you know, from like 10 BC to, you know, 6, 6 AD or something like that, you know, where this the Messiah was supposed to happen. So if, you, if you're out there in the desert, you're thinking this, and all of a sudden you hear about this, this guy, Jesus, and you, you hear about the miracles, and you, and you hear like when he was born, and, you know, you just you just hear stuff that people are saying about him. You're probably thinking, <laughs> maybe we were right. <laughs> like, I, when's my day off? I, I got to go. <laughs> I got to go hear this guy. You know, what, when's, can I have a hall pass out of the desert? Because I, you know, I, I need to go, go check this guy out. And, and there's, there are a number of things about the Qumran lifestyle and their theology and, and again, their reverence for Enoch and the content of Enoch that leads a number of scholars to, to wonder that it, it, it seems reasonable to think that a lot of the people who would have been of this community would have followed, would have become Jesus followers because of all these different things. Because he's out there, oh yeah, you know, you got to go hear this guy. You know what his favorite title for himself is? Son of man. Isn't that a... <laughs> Isn't that funny? You know, again, if you're if you're the guy from if you're the guy from Karad, you're probably sitting there <laughs> thinking that's not really funny. Yeah. You know that, that. In fact, it's a little scary. You know be, because like if this is the guy, again, we're expecting we're all doomed. Or, you know, or you know whose side are we on? Because you're you're expecting that you know, this this messianic arrival, and and it, again, you're yeah. thinking Day of the Lord. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> Which, which isn't terribly comforting, you know. <laughs> they're thinking Day of the Lord, which right. again isn't isn't a, a warm and fuzzy thought, because of all the you know it's the apocalypse, it's it's judgment and whatnot. So I, I find I find it really hard to think, hard to believe that if you're somebody who had this theology again that's reflected in Enoch, and you know this is the community that revered Enoch, and you know took care of a lot of these texts. That when you hear this stuff, you just conclude that ah, can't be him, can't be the guy. You know, I would think the exact opposite is true. That that it's like, holy cow, you know, we, <laughs> we maybe we're right, you know, because again of their their whole eschatological system and and just the messianic stuff in the book. I mean, they're going to know this. They're going to know this material, and it's going to very at the very least draw attention. So the idea that, that this is all post-Christian invention, you know, this, this sort of the supernatural elements or the, the, the divine elements with the Messiah, people who claim that have never read 1 Enoch 48 and other passages in the book, and, and frankly, other things in other books. It's like, you might as well just, you know, put a disclaimer on your show that says, right. we're hopelessly uninformed and ignorant, please watch our show. Because the the, the the claims just don't match the data. But again, they're not in, interested in, in data. They're interested in driving this wedge, you know, between 
uh, like I said, the, the quote-unquote Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, because that, that just serves a, a greater agenda. Yeah, I agree. And anytime I see anything from those channels, it, it really makes that obvious. Um, I, I want to ask you if there's if 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 there's any way we can know if Jesus had direct inter interactions with the Qumran community in in any way. And we we do have a lot more to talk about too. Uh, we got to talk about wisdom, and you, you mentioned these books. I want to get a little bit more into that and the angels, mm -hmm. uh, much more. But before we do, Mike, if uh, people want to get your book and find you online, where can they do that? Yeah, the nerve center is dr, as in doctor, msh.com, drmsh.com. All the books you can find on Amazon. But, you know, for the blog and links to other things, you know, that I'm into, you know, the, the podcast, uh, Fringe Pop, you know, the YouTube channel, you, you can find links right there. So that's the easy place to go. But I, I was smart enough to actually get domain names that, <laughs> that match the the titles of what we do so nakedbiblepodcast.com fringepop.com and you know youtube just type in fringepop321 you're going to find it so those are the places to go excellent i highly suggest that people do all right we're going to pick the rest of this conversation up in the members only section of this video which you can find at dailyrenegade.com just get a membership or get a free trial and check out the rest of our interview over there uh if you're already a member hang on the line everyone else thank you so much take care and god bless <laughs>